The author Ursula K. Le Guin once wrote, To see a candle's light, one must take it into a dark place. Well, my guest today on the program did just that. And in that dark place, both the candle and the flame were steadying company. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. of my guest today on the program, Robert Forster. Let me tell you a little bit about Robert Forster. The Brisbane-born Robert Forster is perhaps best known as a founding member of the legendary band, The Go-Betweens. How legendary are they? Well, let's just say this. There's a bridge in Brisbane called The Go-Between Bridge. Now, I was going to say that the Go-Betweens were one of the most critically acclaimed bands of the last 40 years, but that falls short of the mark. They're one of the most critically acclaimed bands ever. Their nearly 10-album discography is a rare one in that every entry is a classic. The band ceased to be in 2005 after the death of Grant McLennan, but Forster has pressed on with a winning solo career that got started back in 1990. His own eight-album oeuvre is also a list of classics like Danger in the Past, I Had a New York Girlfriend, and his new one, The Candle and the Flame. The Candle and the Flame is astonishing work. Recorded after the news that his wife and musical partner Karen was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, Forster's normally meticulous process was put aside, and he and his family, his son Louis and his daughter Loretta, and his wife Karen, sat down and, unsure of the future, recorded the nine songs on the record with urgency and heart. The Candle and the Flame is a spellbinding listen. It's filled with the wondrous poetic precision that Forster is known for, but it also showcases a dynamic feel that makes every song brim with a raw, sonorous grace. Putting it simply, it's just wondrous work. It's an artistic and personal achievement that shows the power of art, the power of family, and the power of hope. An author of several books, a music critic, and a true gentleman, Robert Forster is a class act, and this conversation is one that I'll cherish forever. I hope you will too. So here's me and Robert Forster having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast.
played a bunch in San Francisco, but I guess you never made it out to Berkeley. No, no, we didn't. Um, we, yeah, like we never played there and we never got the, uh, that was one one regret. That, that would have been, San Francisco has always been, um, I don't know, some, some, an American city I, I sort of relate to a lot, mainly through its history. Um, right, well, it's his, rock history or countercultural history. And, um, and so I always wanted to move around a bit there, but I, I never got the chance. Anyway, maybe yeah, one day. You certainly played played enough times here, right? You played a bunch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we did, and you know, like if I ever had a, you know, like an hour or two, I'd go to City Lights Bookshop. You know, I, I used to just jump in the cab and go there, and walk around that area. Um, but that was about as far as I got. You know, outside of the venue. Um, yeah, but I used to enjoy doing that. By the way, it looks very well lit and very peaceful in uh, Australia right now. It is. Well, it's 10 o'clock in the morning. So, um, and it's going to be um, 33 degrees today. Like we, we've had a very mild summer, but this week is definitely the hottest one. So it's suddenly sort of summer is hitting a little bit later than what it usually does. Yeah. I just talked to Steve Kilby and he said that he, he was recommended to him not even to go outside between 10 and 6. Yeah, that's you were talking to Steve Kilby. Yeah, why? How Steve Kilby? Cranky. Oh, really? Oh, he's. I I really like Steve a lot. He he was on the show, and he um, he was just yeah. He's very uh, he's sort of lovably cranky. Oh, cool. And what what's he? Uh, I don't wish to pry, but but what's he cranky about in sort of broad terms? Getting older. Oh, <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, it was funny because I talked to him. I talked to Pete Astor before that. And Pete's very, very uh, mellow about getting older, whereas Steve's, Steve uh, is not happy about it. He said it sucks. Wow. Okay. Okay. Well, he, I mean, without, you know, I mean, Steve should be just be a little bit happy that he's still alive and functioning, really. So. Right. Um, but anyway, that's that's his take on it. Okay. That's his take. Did you ever run into him? Or you, did you have any, any, do you know Steve? I do know Steve. Um, it's a big thing, you know, like, um, you know, like it's a bit of a cliche, but, you know, living in Brisbane, the difference between Brisbane and Sydney, it, it would be a little bit like San Francisco and LA. You know, it's, it, it really is. Um, um, and so I see him occasionally. I, I sort of, he put out a book, like a memoir um, a couple of years ago, and I did, and there was an event in a local bookshop and I interviewed him um, for that, um, and I ran in. I run into him very occasionally. Um, he's very, very entertaining. He's yeah. very, very. <laughs> I could listen to Steve Kilby talk for hours. Uh, he's just very funny and a fantastic company. Yeah, yeah. He's he's fun to talk to. I, you know, it's funny. It's one of those things where you say, like, uh, I mean, I really, I was talking to Dave Cantrell um, here at Stereo Embers about the, the album, and and we yeah. both are just, it's just so profoundly powerful and personal. Awesome. And and Dave was even saying that he's been working on, he's really crafting it because it's made him so thoughtful about experiences. And, um, you know, it's it, first of all, it's a beautiful, powerful album. Thank you. And, um, thank you, thank you. 
Thank yeah. you. We're very, very happy with it. And um, we're, yeah, yeah, thank you. No, I appreciate that. Did it ever feel, because I'm a writer and I wrote about some things of this nature and I ended up doing the Kafka thing where I threw them away because it felt too personal even for me to read, to be honest. Yeah. Um, did it ever did it ever feel like this is almost like it feels like it's too personal or were were you comfortable with how intimate that was? Um, I, I look I think a big thing was that eight of the nine songs on the album were written before Curran's diagnosis. So the work in a way was done and we were playing these songs initially not thinking that we we're going to make an album that it was just something to do after a long day with Karen struggling with chemotherapy and just, it was just a release. So the, the album almost crept up on us that it was going to happen. Um, and the songs were written, as I said, except for She's a Fighter, were, were written in three or four years before that. That sort of gave it a distance. And um, I, I was, no, I, I, I felt, I was aware of the significance of what I was singing. Um, I wasn't going in blindly, but I, I, I was still, I was comfortable with everything. Did her diagnosis also make you then sort of apply a new lens to the songs that were already written and they take on a new resonance? Oh, <laughs> definitely, yeah. yeah. They, they, they really did. Um, you know, the, in the past, there, there's things always where, where there's a bit of, you know, this is a big word, but a bit of prophecy in, in what you write and suddenly, you know, events turn and, and it looks like you sort of felt certain things coming. But um, but with this, it was um, not that I felt anything coming, but with, with, with in terms of Karen's health, but it, it really was, these songs took on almost another meaning or definitely took on another meaning after the diagnosis. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, it was almost spooky, uh, is any way I can describe it. Um, um, but there we were. That's what what I'd written. Um, and it's, but it's good. It's from a, diff a lot of different perspectives. The, the songs are quite different. And so it's looking at probably a few things from different angles. Um, so it wasn't like every song sort of on the same path. So although they were poignant, they, they were that were coming at, at certain at, from certain angles yeah. yeah because my my whole when i was reading the story of the album and i thought well it's only poison to, in my brain i thought poison is chemotherapy right yeah 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 um and then of course like um you know there's a reason to live i mean these yeah. it's amazing how these songs become recontextualized yes 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 yeah which which you know like you have to think that's a beautiful thing that songs can do that um, or anything um, involved with self-expression that you can, they can fit different circumstances. So those songs fitted the moment and were truly felt when I wrote them, but then they can equally stand up to and have this other meaning and just as valid with new meanings after the diagnosis. Um, so, you know, like it's good. It's, Interesting that um, art or self-expression can do that. When you and I talked, you were telling me how, you know, Grant would come to the studio with like 40 songs and you'd have two, right? Yeah. That, and so here you are with this new new batch of songs. But I'm also wondering if 
the emotional experience of her diagnosis also made you write more songs? Did you find that it made you more prolific or did you or did you just work on the album instead? No, no, there there aren't any new songs. It's all the all the, on the albums, all the the eight songs I've written over the previous years, mm. and and the one song that I added was "She's a Fighter." I I had the music for that in June, two thousand and twenty-one, and Karen's diagnosis came in early July, and I just saw her, her how she gathered herself for what was ahead, and and just what she was saying, how she was gonna. Be strong and, and fight this, and and you know, um, sort of spiritual strength that she had with it all. And that line, she's a fighter. And then I added the line, fighting for good, just slotted into this really quick piece of music that I had. It was almost like I couldn't turn my singer songwriter brain off. But I, I, I had, after the diagnosis, I had no intention of songwriting. Um, or, or doing anything. It was like it was just a caring role. There wasn't time. The whole thing was just so overwhelming that I didn't think of songwriting. And so when Karen and I, after a couple of weeks, when she started chemo, we started singing these songs late at night with me on acoustic guitar and her just singing, was because she, we both knew, you know, I had these new songs that I've been playing around the house for years and we could just sort of, was just strumming along to them doing a process that we'd done in the past, like my last two albums, and often in the past, going back to the 90s, I'd play current new songs and she'd play violin to them or sing to them. And that wouldn't necessarily end up on the albums, but the last two albums, Song to Play and Songs to Play and Inferno, she's been doing that. So in a way, we just started, we've done this so often. My new songs and she'll just sort of start to sing, she'd heard them around the house and she'll start to contribute melody lines. And that's what we did not knowing that we're going to make a record. I, I have found throughout my life as a writer that if anything happens, the first place I go is to the pen. That's the only oh, way right. I know to make sense of anything. <laughs> yeah. Whether whether it's, you know, it doesn't even matter. It's just, that's the place I go. Um, and so you didn't do that. And you, But so where oh. did you go for your solace? And where did you? It, it was in the plane. That's what, that's what, it was it was almost the business of playing these songs you know playing it's only poison and Karen coming in with that vocal line that starts on the third verse and she sort of came up with that and this was just this beautiful late night experience where now it was just like the, the business of just making small little after we play the song and just she'd sing something or we'd talk about the arrangement or whatever. It was the business of doing it. It, it, it. That was that was the solace. That's where we went. It was the doing. Um, the writing, in a way, had already been done. Um, and and coming up with those six lines, um, she's a fighter fighting for good, to me summed it all up anyway. That was about as much as I could do. And that got... Um, um, those six words were very powerful. You know, like it was, there was something post the diagnosis and this song, She's a Fighter, which is why we decided to keep that song where it was just the four of us in the family that play on it. Like it's myself, Karen, our son, Lewis, and our daughter, Loretta, with only four musicians on that song. We just wanted to keep that one to ourselves. But, um, yeah, it, you know, like it was, the, it was the doing. It, that and the the writing I was satisfied with, 
And I, I really didn't want to add any more. I didn't want to take on the topic of what had happened. I was just, we were just happy to work on the songs we had. And that image of, in the video of the four family members sitting yeah. like that uh, is really powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, yeah. we could feel it, we could feel it on, on the day. Um, and, and it was the first time, and that was the studio that we recorded it in, the album in, and that's a lot of the times of the way the musicians were sitting on certain of the sessions was four, four of us, not, um, or three of us, or it was Lewis and I playing, recording together, just sitting in that sort of circle formation was. Um, so that was just like an added resonance to what was happening. But we we realised that because we had not done nothing with our children in terms of any sort of public um, uh, exposure. Um, and and suddenly there were the four of us. Um, and we, we knew that this was, there was a power to that. Definitely, definitely. Was there a part of you that was like, wow, we should have done this earlier. It's fun to play with these guys. <laughs> um, not really, no. Um, you know, you, you've just got to take the, the how things occur and be reactive in the moment. So with Karen's diagnosis, it suddenly opened up these channels and, and we could do things like that that we hadn't done in the past. And um, so it was almost safe for that moment. And, and that's a good thing. Is that Lewis? Is he is he doing bass as well as? Yeah, he's playing a number of. He's playing bass. He's playing guitar. He did the percussion. Um, he did a rhythm guitar that's in there as well. Um, and Loretta played the the electric some electric guitar. Karen played the xylophone. And I played acoustic guitar and sang. But yeah, like he he did quite a bit of. Um, because he's he's like a he's a better musician than, than I am. Um, like you know, I couldn't play bass like that or anything. You know, like he's a better musician. He's he's sort of got a music a, a more a different and a more tuned musical brain than I have. So he'll sort of add things that I wouldn't have thought of. And and he's competent over a number of instruments and confident to play lines. Um, so yeah, so he he plays quite a lot on the record and on that track. His bass playing, he's so dexterous. He is. He is. He's got very, very big hands. Um, and um, he sort of, he played quite a bit of bass in the Goon Sacks. And um, that bass actually that's in the, in the clip is one, is the first, is, is the bass that was all the way through the Goon Sacks. It's his bass. Um, so Lewis got that when he was around 15, 16. So he's sort of around that age. He'd been playing guitar for a number of years. He was playing guitar and bass at home. So he's sort of, again, something that I think is probably like a like a younger generation, perhaps, of musicians do. I can remember back in the 70s and 80s. It could have just been with the musicians that I was uh uh, connecting with you know like people play just the guitar and then and then there was someone playing bass you very rarely met someone or i very rarely met someone who was competent on both but i think in, in newer generations um, of musicians they seem to people play there's a lot of multi-instrumentalist 
around in young bands these days, I find. So you and purpose he's he, and he's one of them. Yeah, and and so your the idea of collaborating with your kids was something that you sort of decided had not to do. You didn't want to mix the two all these years. Let no, them have no, room. no, no, no. Particularly, um, Lewis didn't want to do it, and I totally respected him. You know, he had his own road to hoe, um, and um, he he was. And I think also because with the Goonsacks, they were often running at fifteen. So it was like he was just like shot out of a cannon, the whole three of them. It was like it was the band just sort of happened from their inception. And so he he was just on that trip and, and he was um, and that's that's what he had to do. Um, and so, and that was fine. I mean, you know, like that's he's he's got to cut his own way. But but. That's what sort of made this record so extraordinary and unusual. Suddenly there we are, you know, in the studio doing this and rehearsing in our home for songs that are going to be on a recording, you know, like that was the massive turnaround um, or one of them that came along. How was that collaborative process with with the kids? Like how was that, you know, you you have your own way of working. You've worked for so long with so many people. There's a way that you take notes and give notes. Did you have to sort of adjust that or did it just sort of, was it very natural? You didn't have to even think about how that stuff worked. It was very natural. Um, especially like Lewis did a lot. I mean, Loretta played on one song, guitar and she's a fighter and she sang on uh, Go Free. Um, but with Lewis, it was, you know, like we'd played before in the house. So um, we'd, we'd sort of, just done private things at home when, when we had new songs. Um, primarily me, he, he, I'd sort of show him something and he'd play along. And um, so we'd done a little bit of that. And, and he's, sort of, he's sort of seen how I work. I know how he works. It was very easy. It was really, really easy. Um, I just play the songs and he'd just start coming up with ideas. He's very fast. Um, so, um, yeah, and then he'd have suggestions about, you know, ideas for things. And that was always, and that's been with, with how I've worked with, with, with people, going right back to starting with, with Grant, with, with the go-betweens. It was like, you know, like, you are, you know, like, I can, I'm happy to guide, but I want your pure input. You know, I don't, I don't want robots around me where I'm just, you know, and that's gone all the way through. Um, and so that's the way it was with, um, working on this album as well. Did he have some ideas that you kind of went, "Wow, that's a really, that's a really good idea." I wouldn't have thought of that. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, he he had one on um, definitely on uh, the last song when I was a young man, and it was always just him and I. I'm playing rhythm guitar, and he's playing the um, lead all around it. This beautiful guitar, um, and then we're in the studio, and it sort of sounded done to me. It was like a live take, you know, just me singing and strumming and him playing uh, this sort of, um, and his beautiful guitar. And that's the way we'd always played it. Um, and then he just in the studio, he said, I think we should put some bass in the chorus. And he just picked up the bass and went out and just did this sort of pumping um, thing that really lifted the chorus. And I was just like, wow, you know, like that was just, he just said that in the studio and just went out and played it and it worked straight away. Um, so he, he's got an ear for arrangements like that. 
um, that is really, really great, really good. And as a as a father, that also must make you immensely proud. Yeah, it is. It is. It it it's it's um. It is because he um. It's especially you know when you when you write when you're playing a song called "When I Was a Young Man," um, and your son is playing guitar on it. Um, <laughs> you know, like you'd have to be a fool not to see the the resonances and the reverberations there. But um. Yeah, it was, you know, like it, it, it sort of, he just slotted in. And of course, when we brought in, like say on Tender Years, when, which is like definitely the sort of the biggest band track, um, um, he slotted in perfectly with um, Scott Bromley and Luke McDonald, who I've worked with on my last two albums. Um, so he fitted in perfectly with musicians and also like, on its only poison and always um the bass player is the Dell Pick Bands who played in the Go Betweens from two thousand two thousand six. And so, you know, he slotted totally into playing with her as well. It was all very, very easy. Yeah. And I think that also the recording process was that that was faster than you're used to, right? The actual recording. Yeah, yeah. Because there was no time to the 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 difference to a normal album that I would make or most 95% of the people that you're talking with making albums would be a rehearsal period, you know, um, over a couple of months or weeks or even years. And then you go in the studio for a certain amount of time and you block time if you have that money. And, or even, even if you're doing home recording, you're blocking time. We didn't do any, we didn't do either of those two things. Like the rehearsal was just playing here in the lounge room, basically except for one or two days in a practice room when we did the band tracks. And recording was just days when Karen was well enough to go in the studio. So we had to be very loose. So it was a day here, two days there, a month goes by and it's one day there. So the way the record was made is very different. And so what that meant is that all my singing on the record is live. There's no, we, we didn't have time for me to, oh, let's put down the track or some of the track. Then I'll do a day or two of, God, of master vocals. None of that. It's all live. All the singing, which I've never done an album like that before. How did that feel? How did how did that work for you? Because obviously it was a necessary thing to do. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. But but removing yourself from that, did that make you think like, oh wow, this process, which used to be more maybe more meticulous and maybe more yeah. orchestrated, yeah. now yeah. it isn't. And it's a magnificent result. Yeah, yeah. Does that yeah, change? I, I think I've been working to that. I've I've been work, thinking for a number of years of doing live vocals. Um, there's a couple of tracks through my albums and and going back to go between stuff where there might be one live vocal every two albums that that I do a live take and I really like it and we kept it and I always thought. Um, it would be possible to do, I wanted to do a record like that. And I think it was because I was older as well. I was sort of more relaxed. I was, you know, the recording process I know so well. And I, it was just a case of letting yourself go and just going, well, this is it. Um, what I lose in precision, I'll make up in feel. That's what I thought, you know, like, and I, I listened to the vocals and, I, and they're really loose for me, and I love them. That's the way that I really sing. So 
um, I just I just had to put that out of my mind, um, and that what we picked up on vibe would would outweigh if I slurred things or, or stuff like that. Um, and also, I went into the record knowing um, that if there were mistakes that weren't too noticeable, we'd keep them. Um, we'd go with mistakes as well. Um, and and like I can. Um, if you, you can pick them up, there's there's one clear one on I don't do drugs. I um, I had a time where Adele played some wrong notes. She'd only played the song twice before we recorded, and and I can you, you can hear she's watching my hands where I'm going. There's only three chords in the song, but she she goes to wrong notes occasionally. They're in key, so they work, um, but you can hear that. Um, and she was good enough to just go, okay, let's just go with that. And it sounds fantastic. And, and so mistakes, live vocals, it was all, I, I was ready to, to do that. And that was like a, a way of working that I went into the recordings with. That, that the spontaneity and the time we had was so important that we couldn't get bogged down with perfection and we'd go for something else. I see her through the ages She's a book of a thousand pages That you can thumb Images of her are vivid Her beauty has not withered From her entrance in chapter one I'm in a story with her No, I can't live without her I can't imagine one I know it's growing daily, lately I see how far we've come Memory is a servant and I have been observant There is a story to tell Laughter was distorted, wind came, plans were aborted Love scenes are at night I'm in a story with her No, I can't live without her I can't imagine one Walking through salt and water I see how far we've come Time is important Timing is more important Without it, a story can end Heidelberg is a German city by a river, very pretty, and it was there. The timing was our friend. Come on. I'm in a story with her. No, I can't live without her. I just can't imagine one. I know it's growing daily. Lately I see how far we've
faces These are the tender pages Of short days in little sun I remember carrying a baby While you lay in bed waiting For another baby to come I'm in a story with her Perfectionism for you, was that born out of your own, just kind of the way that you... It's ingrained. It's ingrained, Alex. It's, it's ingrained in every every musician. It, it'd be any any band you'd talk to that have done more than four or five albums or whatever. It's ingrained in you. It's what... it's You've heard records like that growing up. It's what engineers tell you. It's what the rest of the band tell you. Um, you know, it's like um, you made a mistake there. You know, like oh, okay, you know, obviously in, in the eighties it was a little bit harder to go in and fix. Now, of course, you can. It's just done in seconds. And so, everyone's just sort of. There's a lot of cleaning up that goes on in records, even even records that sound quite rough and raw. There's a bit of cleaning up going on, and um, everyone does it. Like the, no one would complain in the band or the producers or management or anyone and friends walking in and go oh that's you you should you should fix that you know and and of course you can go in and do it and that's what people do so there there is that operating with all bands and all artists i think um no matter how underground they are to an extent um but um we we just had to i was willing to let that go yeah and does it feel kind of good to have let it go? For, is it yeah. Feel kind of, yeah, 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 yeah. I, 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 um, it, it would be hard for me to go back and now. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but, um, definitely with the singing, I really couldn't imagine it doing any other way. Um, now, um, of course, I just love that in the moment feel. You know, like I was probably too scared in the past when I was younger. And when I'm say younger, probably, you know, in my mid forties, I was still too scared to do it. Um, but there was a few, like there's a track on the last album, Inferno, 
um, called Life Has Turned a Page, where I did it, where, where, where it was me on acoustic guitar, the bass player and the drummer, and it's quite a sparse song, and we did it, and I walked back in the studio and I heard the vocal, and, and I said to the engineering producer, gee, that sounds great, and he went, look, we should just keep it. And, I, and that was a moment where I went, I could do that, and I could hear in that vocal the way it sits in the track that it had something different to, everything, to all the other vocals I did, and I just thought, mm, you know, like, um, there's something I'm right in the, it's, it's also like, because I'm playing guitar and doing the thing, my singing's very much with the guitar. And so it's, it's very much, the singing has a, a rhythm to it that comes off the instrument that you're playing. Be the same if I played piano and, and was singing, you know, like you start to do this where your hands are doing two things and your voice is working with the hands. And it's the same with um, the guitar. And so, and I can hear it. I can hear I'm singing to the guitar which is really the way that it should be, but um, it'll be hard not to do it any other way in the future. Yeah, because the result is a kind of, has a kind of raw dynamism that you can't get if you do it a hundred times. You can't, you can't. Um, and, and yeah, and, and obviously this is the way that a lot of people in the 50s and 60s and 70s recorded. Um, and you can hear it on a whole lot of records um, by artists, um, whether singing live in the studio with a band or folk records or, or whatever kind of records you're talking about, a lot of people are doing that by playing live. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because, I mean, uh, songs that you mentioned in your book, like even stuff like, I don't know if the Velvet Underground were doing it live, but it sounds like they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and like a, like a, a moment for, for me too was, like, um, and I don't think this went into the album, but about a year and a half ago, I listened to Blonde on Blonde again, you know, Dylan's Blonde, which I haven't listened to for a long time. And you can actually hear mistakes on that, like quite obvious ones. Where, and against the bass player, the bass player is watching Dylan's hands and goes to a wrong note. And they don't, being Dylan, he didn't stop and he didn't go, when they went, must have all gone back to the control room. And the bass player would go, you know, look, um, I played the wrong note there. Obviously, Dylan and his producer just went, well, Dylan just went, I don't care. You know, like, we've got the vibe. It's a seven-minute song. There's one song in particular, um, Visions of Johanna. You, you, you can hear the bass player. The band haven't got the arrangement completely, and there's there's sort of mistakes. Um, and, and you can actually hear the guitar players coming up with good licks towards the end of the song, you know, you know, and anyone else would have gone, okay, let's do it again. And those licks that you're doing really good at the end of the song, we'll start with that and you'll play it all the way through. <laughs> but Dylan doesn't. He, they, you, you can hear the band working on their parts as the song goes and they'd be expecting to do another take and Dylan doesn't. And that has something, there's something about that because you're hearing music emerging and so, you know, when I listened to that, I just went, you know, like blonde on blonde, you know, rock classic, um, et cetera. And there's mistakes on that. And you, you, you can hear Dylan coming in late on the lyrics because he's forgotten the first word and, and all of this sort of stuff. And it sounds fantastic, you know. So, yeah, like that, that was interesting to, to hear that record and hear what he was doing there. Yeah, because it turns out that you're at a place now in your life where you – can maybe say 
vibe is more important than precision. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and I think I think someone like Dylan knew that from the start. Um, or, or that's the way he wanted to record. But yeah, like that's that's very much. Um, I've always felt that you know, especially over the last few records. Um, but it's become um, like really central on this record, and would would be something that I'd take into the future. So with the go-betweens, there were never any really any early takes of vocals that you kept. It was always crafted. Yeah, I can't really remember doing that, and Grant certainly not. Um, he was more a um, perfectionist than I was. Like, like um, Grant liked a layered approach, and so did I. You know, like I, especially in the '80s, it was just so expected. Um, but I can't really. There, there would be odd bits, but not really. Um, no, um, I'm just trying to think. Um, there, there might be one thing, like on the Friends of Rachel Worth that we did with Larry Crane up in um, Portland um, in 2000. A couple of my vocals might be live, and maybe one of Grant's, and and that was very much. Well, you know, it was 2000, it wasn't 1988. And we were in that mood with with Larry where we were playing in the studio. And it was it was um, a lot more of a lot. You know, Grant and I wanted to do that after making those more perfectionist go-betweens records in the 80s. We started with Larry. It's probably one of the reasons why we picked Larry because Larry Crane just had um, a really lovely studio. He was very good at recording uh sounds he was very good at creating a really good atmosphere in the studio so you started to sing and relax and you'd come in and listen and go oh let's keep that vocal that sounds really great that was probably where it started when you were growing up i mean did did punk rock which was ragged and not precise yeah did, did that i mean i want to say the saints but i feel like the saints were much more crafted than maybe yeah. than i'm realizing right yeah. Yeah. But did that sort of ragged dynamism, did it appeal to you as a music fan more than as a musician, at the, as a young man? Oh, no, no, um, both, both. I mean, I, I think um, the, that um, that was a, a really an, an initial impetus for it, the, the wildness of those records and um, the urgency of particularly post-punk um, was really influential on the go-betweens. Um, and, and that sort of, uh, they were very, uh, the records, a lot of them were, were, were quite fast and experimental at the same time. Um, and so, no, no, definitely, you know, like talking about uh, a quick and, and uh, more ragged approach to, or untraditional approach to recording, was definitely um, within us in um, from those records. Definitely. Are you talking about bands like like Wire or Gang of Four? Or that, did that yeah, stuff? yeah, Wire, Gang of Four, um, Magazine, um, The Birthday Party, Orange Juice, uh, James Chance, um, all of those. A little bit, you know, like I'm not so much into No Wave, but some of that as well. Um, and uh, yeah, 
really like talking heads albums like uh, more songs about building and food, especially Fear of Music, uh, which is my favorite talking heads album, has a sort of more of an organic vibe um, than records they made before and after. Um, that was an important record. Uh, yeah. How about the fall? Because I, they they sounded to me like it was all sort of just thrown together and, and yeah, it's so yeah. remarkable. I, I wasn't as big a fall uh, fan as a lot of other people that I knew. Um, but I really liked um, uh, their, their single, strange enough, like Totally Wired and how I wrote Elastic Man, um, Ralph Rumble and all of that sort of stuff. I really liked those those songs that they were making in the late 70s, early 80s, those sort of more poppy singles. Um, the albums I, I listened to but didn't drag, didn't grab me as much as a couple of songs, but they certainly had that. That That's a very, very good example. You know, the Raincoats, um, um, their albums, um, and um, they were part of that. Obviously, the Slits Cut album. Um, has a, a looseness and a a great vibe to it. The Birthday Party are one of those bands that now, for me, at 52, I feel like I finally understand. Like, it took me 30 years to, to, get, to get it. How do those how did those albums age for you? The Birthday Party records? Yeah. Um, good. My, my favorite one's Prayers on Fire, which, which is more song-orientated um, than, than Junk, which I think is better than Junkyard. Um, Good. I mean, we we played with them a lot, um, and we we were um, especially around the making of Junkyard. We we were living in Melbourne at the same time that they were there recording it and were playing with them. Um, they were they were diff, different to to Grant and I in that the Grant and I were more uh, singer songwriters, where where their music was almost. Um, instant combustion, or you know, like that. That have ideas. From what I can gather, you know, Nick would have a something on piano, or Roland would have a guitar riff. Nick Harvey would have something, and that sort of that weld the songs more. Um, where our songs came from more uh, singer-songwriter practice. Um, so they were a different kind of band. Um, they became different the part, you know, when it became Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, especially in the late 80s, it became a lot more singer song, traditional singer songwriter. But back then it was a lot more explosive and things were just pulled a little bit more out of thin air. Um, but I really liked them. I, I thought they were, um, you know, like um, probably the most influential thing they ever did to me on record was release the Bat single like that. I can remember hearing that and just going, oh, fuck, how can I do that? How can I even get close to that? How I've got to pull some of that. And, you know, like, like that's like one of the 10 best rock and roll songs ever written. You know, like that was, um, but I love Press on Fire. You know, like I saw them play, we saw them play all those songs, all the Junkyard songs. And um, they were uh, a very, very, and also like, like, you know, like I won't go on too much, but, but the birthday party were also, a good example of freewheeling like um, artists. You know, they were like they were they were pig-headed. They 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 were uncontrollable. Um, they were 
you know, like good examples of 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 artists, you know, of of how to go about things. Um, they were they were in they were. Uh, it was good to see that right before your eyes. It's an interesting build because I think that you are so controlled and so precise, and they were so electrifyingly uh, unpredictable and de- yeah. terrifying. It was a look. I thought it was a really good build. Like whenever we played together. Because you know, like we were a very nervy three piece at that very sort of skeleton sounds very, very fragile in a way, um, and there's only three of us, um, and so in a way we gave away nothing of what was going to come after mm. uh, us. If there had been another noisy five piece band before the birthday party, it would have blunted them a little bit, and we didn't. So the full force of what they were doing hit because we weren't taking up too much of their space. So I always thought it was a really good double bill and um, it worked really well. Like both bands, they, they were really great shows. So you'd go first. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, no, no one could go second. Um, no, no, no. We'd, we'd always play first. And, um, and it was good standing on stage. Um, Knowing, funny, it's a funny, funny memory that comes back. Standing on stage where, because there's no YouTube footage, you know, obviously around. Like Grant, Lindy, and I knew what was coming when we were standing on stage. So we knew in about an hour the birthday party we we're going to walk on, and we knew what they were going to do because we'd played with them and we knew them. And so it was good standing on stage, playing our music, our sort of fragile three-piece fractured music, um, melodic um, fractured music, and knowing this explosion was coming um, was was a really, really, uh, it was was good standing on stage knowing what was going to happen very soon. Are you still friends with Nick? Um, I I haven't seen him in about 10 years. and um, they, him and Warren came through um, in early December and I went and saw the show um, and I, I met up with them after. I, I hadn't seen them in 10 years. It was just lovely. It was really, um, they were in a COVID bubble um, and, um, and so, and it was Brisbane where, you know, like backstage in Sydney and Melbourne, I'd imagine it would have so it was brisk. It was really nice. Like I just hadn't spent time with them for a long time, and um, it was really sweet. Really, really great to catch up with them. I'm thinking so much about what you're talking about in terms of the the recording of vocals, and just to revisit that for a second. I, I was thinking about. I love the Triffids. I just love that band. Oh yeah, yep, yep, yep. Love them. But when I watch the live footage of the songs, I think I like the live stuff better because it's less yeah. precise and it sort yeah. of has that raw thing we're talking about. Yeah. So. I would imagine an argument against um, being so precise is that you could that dynamism might be a fatality of of you might lose it, right? Oh yeah, and and the eighties, particularly, especially working <laughs> in a, in a place a high pressure place like London, which was you know like, you know, where's the hit single? Um, you know, it's being thrown at you all the time. Um, it was, it was, you know, it just no one you know you spend three days getting the bass drum sound right you know like it it, it was just ludicrous 
And so it was all about this sort of, you play precise and with the machines, we can make it sound echoey and big. And, and, and it never did, of course. Um, so it was very hard to, to have any sort of recording budget and be in a place like London and record really the, 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 the best record that we've made in, in the, we, we, but we managed to make two really good records um, that have a, like before Hollywood, which we made in 982, and um, Liberty Bell and the Black Diamond Express, which we made in 985, are really great sounding records. If only if you put them in the context of the way rock records sounded in the 80s. You know, like besides, if you don't even look at the songwriting, they sound really great. So we, we managed twice to get what, and both those records, you know, we, we just got them sounding great. And then other times, you know, it wanders off the path a bit and you really can't control it. You think that you go into a studio making one record and you can come out, you've made another one. And, um, but yeah, it was difficult. And, and the triplets ran up to that exactly. So, so they got it once with Born Sandy Devotional um, in London. But then I think they struggled like we did at times to get that vibrancy as well, you know, like, and get that spontaneity. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, it was a common struggle. You know, Pete Astor would be able to tell you about this as well. Um, when when he was with the Weather Prophets, you know, like that, that was something that he would have struggled with enormously as well. Yeah, because the record with Bury Me Deep in Love, such great songs, but so coded in 80s, stuff yeah, yeah 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 and and it was such a strong it's the way everyone was was working as it was the way all the producers and engineers were, were working um and as soon as i got control back into what i wanted to do with my first solo album um danger in the past which were, i recorded in, in berlin in 1990 um you know, like we recorded the album and mixed it in 12 days. And so I just went back to what I wanted to do, which was have, um, be playing live and be doing live takes. Um, most of the vocals on that are overdubbed, but but the, rec the recording's completely different to anything that I'd done in the 80s. It was like 1990 was my first solo album and I could do it the way that I wanted to do. I remember getting that album when I was the, uh, the music director of my college radio station. And I remember getting it and sitting in the dark in the radio station and listening to it and mm -hmm. thinking that it, it that it sounded like Berlin. It sounded like German, yeah. you know? It's yeah. you, so so yeah. you can't put it on a timeline because you did that. It's perfect. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and you know, it was recorded in Hansa with um with Nick Harvey and, and Thomas from the Bad Seeds and um uh and and you know, like it just sort of it was the way that I wanted to to record. You know, like it was, it was get a big studio, have songs, mic things up, and just start to play versions of the songs. It sounded, it sounds incredibly simple, but trying to engineer that situation, um, especially in the 80s and the 90s in the music business, was really, really hard. Um, but I'm glad that I then started to work like that. Hard because you were kicking against the accepted aesthetic. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and to an extent, and and I'm not, you know, like that is the way that 
the go-betweens wanted to work as well. Um, you know, like, you know, like, so, um, you know, I, I got my, my way within the band a lot of times, but I couldn't, you know, that was, you know, like a sort, it, it wasn't, you know, not a huge big issue, but it, but it was something that a frustration that I felt the rest of the band were happy to, to basically record in a more, um, piecemeal, uh, conventional way. Um, it was just a small nickel. You were asking me what Steve Kilby is cranky about. He, in the two times I talked to him, he still brings up Starfish as a record that had its life drained out of it because of what you're talking about. He's yeah. still upset about it. And his, his analogy to me was, he said, you know, my mother was beautiful and then she'd go to the hair salon and she'd come out not looking like herself, right? Yeah. Super processed. And yeah. I think he he was feeling like all the life was drained out of that album. Um, and I think the raw dynamism, which we're talking about, he doesn't think it's anywhere on that record at all. Um, right, right. So right. I, I, I get the frustration. Yeah, yeah, no, no. It, it was just, the, especially um, if you were, it was a deal with the devil because, you know, like if you were on a major label or a, an indie with a lot of, of money, and indie records had money, you know, in the, late 80s and in the 90s it was uh it's that thing you know like you you do that and it sounds like that you work with that engineer you work in that studio these are the records that are getting onto radio um and then when you go out on tour instead of playing to 200 people you'll be playing to 600 people uh you know you'll be staying in a better hotel and you know and it just goes on and on and on the benefits of doing things that way and and it's, you have to be very very willful to um but i think that's changed i think really a lot of the sins we're talking about were that that 80s sound um where rock became very especially if you're, you're making you know like if 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 you know if you're prince or if you're madonna um, and all the other artists in that ilk, if you're making machine type rep music like that, it's great. It's fine. I don't. I don't have anything against anyone. You know, triggering synthesizers, putting down click tracks, um, doing things piecemeal. I have no problem with that. If you're making like funk or soul or pop orientated material, that's the way you got to do it. Great. But if you're uh, like a sort of live sounding rootsy um, rock band with songs, that's not the approach that you need. You need something um, that is a little bit more live. And then then in the late 80s, you know, like on the mid 80s, if you started to, to go, well, why can't we record like the band? Or why can't we record like Credence? Or why can't we record like the way Dylan did and blah blah blah. People thought you were mad. Or, or you know, like, why do you want to go back to the 60s? Why do you want to go back to the 70s? It's 1988, and you know, we got all these gadgets, and but it's like, yeah, but we're a rock band, and yeah, so it's working out that whole thing was very time consuming and a, a big, big discussion point in the 80s and probably running into the 90s. Yeah, I mean, like for example, like New Order's True Faith is a great single, but there's no question about when it came out. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're all earmarked. They're all right. Over there. Yeah, they're all side stamped. stamped. Yeah, they're all stamped. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah. How are you doing in terms of your own consumption of art um, as opposed to making it? Are you reading a lot? Are you listening to a lot of music? Are you watching movies? Like, what is your own intake? Uh, very little um, over the last 18 months because of time. Um, and because I'm working on a novel, um, I'm writing and trying to write a book. Um, my, I, I need an operation of my eyes. I've got cataracts on my eyes. Um, and I find reading really hard. Reading's become very hard and I'm waiting. It's a very long story. I'm, I'm hoping that my eyes can be operated on sometime in the first half of this year. And, and basically I'll, my eyes will be theoretically revolutionized and I'll be able to read again. Um, so yeah, I, I haven't been consuming much at all. I sort of, I've been working on the record. I've been working on the book. Um, we've been obviously going through, um, um, Karen's healthcare here and just, um, so I haven't really just snippets, snippets, bits and pieces, um, you know, here, nothing concentrated or long-term. Has the novel been something that was germinating for a long time or did it, is it? Yeah. Yeah, I started in 2017. Basically, it's a story that I've got in my head. And um, I wrote a draft about, uh, I handed it in about two years ago. And I, I got feedback for, on, on it and I'm working on it. Um, and then when Karen's got the diagnosis, I stopped for six months. So I picked it up again um, about a year ago and I'm, I'm hoping to get a draft in by the end of before I go on tour in early, which I, I am. I, I'm working on it. It's improved a great deal. It's got a lot better. Um, and um, yeah, it's, it's, it's coming along really well. Um, I'm enjoying it still. Um, I've never swerved from the path on it. And uh, hopefully uh, the publishers will like the new draft a lot more. It's a lot better than the first one first draft I can tell yeah I find that that's true I always find that sometimes you know a novel is kind of we're talking about that raw dynamism like in the first draft you get a lot of that raw yeah. live vocal feel but yeah. for a book you kind of do have to have to get exactly yeah 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 it's 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 a little bit like you're trying to keep the freshness you're trying to do that but but it really does improve draft to draft I'd, I'd have to write a lot more um, till I start to think that I'm going backwards. At the moment, I feel really that I'm going forwards. I'm losing those um, spontaneity or looseness. You mentioned City Lights. I think about the Beats. I think the Beats had a beautiful idea of the first draft is the best draft. I think for the spirit of it, yes. But yeah. revision is a is a powerful thing. It is. It is. And and this is what they found out. You know, like with on the road. You know, like they found out that. You know, that's that's a there's a lot of good um, work went into that book after the first burst, um, and um, you know, like there's you know the first manuscript came out, and it's it's a book that's been studied a lot, and and people have seen you know what um, the editor did and what Kerouac did on it. He he did a lot of work on that book um, after the first Big Bang moment, and uh, and the the feeling would be that it's it was all pretty much all for the better 
Um, but I, I still think that, you know, like the, the, the beats are an inspiration to me in terms of lifestyle and uh, the freshness of their work. You know, I think, I think, and I think that's what, that's, that's why they were the revolution in the 50s and 60s, because everything, as we we're saying, was very considered um, in the literary world. And suddenly they came along and were, were riffing more. And, uh, and uh, there's an energy to a lot of that 50s stuff that's just amazing. I think they also made people who maybe didn't think they could write. You read the beats and you thought, maybe I could give this a try. Exactly. Yes, yes. That's a very good point. Yes, yes, um, and and I think if if that if writing can inspire that in other people, I think that's that is fantastic. That's another good thing that is is in the writing if it makes people want to write themselves. Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine about Shakespeare, and I even talked to to Pete about this. And um, like Shakespeare is great, but Shakespeare never made me feel like I could be a writer. It made me feel like I maybe couldn't. You know, I mean. <laughs> Yeah. It didn't inspire me yeah, to pick well, up the It's interesting because, you know, like you could almost say the same about the Beatles. You know, like there's something about them that their work is so perfect. And so every, 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 every bow is tied. Every, everything is just so right. And the songwriting is so neat um, that, you, you know, like the Beatles don't leave you you know, if you really worship them, it doesn't leave you, not worship them, but listen to them a lot. It doesn't leave you much room to go. You know, like it's it's all such a, a complete, perfect, you know, with George Martin there just doing everything right. It's That's a tight world and, and hard to, you know, it's like what you were saying about Shakespeare. You know, it's just all so overwhelming and good and neat. Um, but it's, it's, yeah. It's often you often you find inspiration of things that um, are looser or not so intimidating. I think Hemingway is a good example of someone who really was a craftsman, but yeah. that dynamism we're talking about was was in those was yep. in the yep. sentences. Yep, I agree. I agree. Yes, he's he's got that balance. Yes. Yeah, um, I'm excited about your novel, um, and I well, hope. Thank uh, you. What's the, the the hope to get it out in the coming years? Like, uh... oh yeah, no. Look, I I've already given it a lot. I I will come to a stage where I have to see what they come back with on this one. It's also my first novel, so I'm I'm sort of writing the novel and learning to write the uh, learning to write a novel at the same time. So that's a double process. But um, I I can't I don't want to sort of go on and on and on and be this sort of like a decade long thing. Um, there'll come a point where I'll just go look. I'm really happy with this, and we'll take it from there. I love this album so much, and I'm so grateful to talk to you again. I appreciate you coming back on the show. Absolute pleasure, absolute pleasure, and uh, very very nice talking to you, and um, very nice talking to someone. This is just by the by who's in Berkeley, San Francisco. I find that beautiful. Thank you. And my best to your family and your wife. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. I'll pass it on right now. And I Thanks, and buddy. really lovely talking to you. Like a really, really, really uh, lovely conversation.
that was just a great conversation. Robert Forrester is a charming, erudite, lovely man. And I hope you enjoyed that. RobertForrester.net is where you need to go to find out what's happening with Robert. Pick up the album, The Candle and the Flame. It is really just a remarkable, remarkable piece of work. So do yourself a favor and grab it. And while you're at it, grab his other stuff as well. Danger in the Past, I Had a New York Girlfriend, uh, Inferno, and pick up some go-between stuff as well. Who are we kidding? Get everything. Get everything the go-betweens ever did. Get everything Robert Forster has ever done. And uh, the Grant McLennan records are amazing. Just everything associated with Robert Forrester is class act, brilliant work. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. I'll tell you a little bit right now. There's a new book coming out May 1st. My new novel, The Adventure Teen All-Stars, will be hitting the streets. Will the streets hit back? Well, we're going to find out. You can pre-order the book pretty soon, so I'll keep you posted about that. Follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor or on Instagram at Ember's Podcast or email me, editor, at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Don't forget, bombshellradio.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with our radio station. What makes us tick? Well, check out the site and find out. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate, and review, and tell all your friends. We would certainly appreciate it. Let's close the show with a longer listen to She's a Fighter, the opening track from the remarkable album The Candle and the Flame by Robert Forster. Enjoy it. Thank you, as always, for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bobshell Radio. She's a fighter. She's a fighter. She's a fighter. 